Hume. Hey, it is good to be here, and I loved that video because you know what? That's what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about God. We're here to worship God. We're here to know God. We're here to open His Word and to see what He has to say, and because we are His people, and this is His church, and so this really is all about Him in every way. My name is Courtney Doctor, and I am just honored to be with you all um, for this weekend. And to, oh, thanks. What? No, I'm just going to put my Bible right here. No, I do want that one. I'm just going to put my Bible right here. Megan and I are just so synced. I don't know if y'all saw it. I almost fell down the stairs. She was like, watch your step. And I'm like, I got it. And then I like crashed through all of the things. So we are like a well-oiled machine, you and me. <laughs> so anyway, we are going to have four sessions together over the course of the next two and a half days. And what we're going to do together is we are going to work our way through the book of Romans. So go ahead and turn to the book of Romans now. It's in the New Testament. It's after the Gospels. In the beginning of the New Testament, you'll find it. Look in your table of contents if you need help. There is no shame in that. But Romans is a book of the Bible that is, we could spend the rest of our lives studying the book of Romans. Martin Lloyd-Jones spent 12 years preaching through the book. And so the fact that we literally have two hours together total, four 30-minute sessions, we are just going to be skipping over the surface. But Romans is, it's, it's an amazing book. And I think if you're anything like me, what I have thought for most of my life is it is sort of this Paul's systematic theology textbook for the church. And, and there's a reason I thought that. I mean, it is full of this incredible theology. It is full of rich doctrine. But Romans is also a letter that, it's a passionate letter written by the Apostle Paul, who was a man who had been so captured by the grace and the goodness of God. And it just pours out in this letter if we would just read it as such. And so as we dive into it, there are a couple of things that we need to know about the situation and what was going on. But, but Rome, so he's writing to the church in Rome. Rome is the capital city of the entire Roman Empire. So it's a very strategically located church group of people. And what Paul was doing ultimately in writing them this letter, he's not just giving them a handbook on systematic theology. Paul is trying to compel them. He's trying to unite them. We're going to talk about a little bit about the division that they were experiencing. But he's trying to unite them and then explain to them what the gospel is, what the gospel does, and who the gospel is for so that they will join him on his mission. He has joined God on God's mission, which is the proclamation of the, world, of the word to the entire world. And he wants them to join him as he heads past Rome to Spain. So this church in Rome was made up first of Jewish Christians, meaning they were Jewish people who had come, they'd heard the gospel, they believed, and they were following Christ. And as they proclaimed the gospel in this capital city in Rome, Gentile, non-Jewish people had also responded faithfully to the gospel. And so this church is made up of Jewish and Gentile Christians, and there was some division between them. 
what was happening is the Jewish Christians thought they were a bit superior, kind of, hey, we were here first kind of mentality, and they didn't agree. The two groups did not agree, and I want you all to catch this because we'll come back to it several times. They did not agree on what made a person right before God. How, how, what role did righteousness play? How did you get it? What made you righteous? And so what we're going to do in our four sessions together as we literally just sort of skip over this book of Romans, we are going to see how in the book of Romans, God implores us to do four things. He implores us to run to him, to believe him, that is tomorrow morning, to worship him, and ultimately to be transformed by him. So what I want to do tonight is I want to start where Paul started, which is our need to turn to God, to run to God. And I'll tell you what, the thing that is to compel us to run to God is our sin. Now, this is not how I would have started the letter in the year 2022, right? If I were Paul, I think I would have tried to, you know, build a little bit of relationship capital first with the people there. I mean, remember, he'd never been. They had never met him. And this is how he starts off the letter. But, but he doesn't. He just jumps right into, if you'll look at verse 18 and following, he just jumps right into things like sin and the wrath of God and wickedness and un righteousness. I mean, I want to say, you know, Paul, haven't you ever heard like you're supposed to say two positives before you say a negative, right? Like sandwich this thing in between some really encouraging news, you know, maybe a few affirmations. But if you read verse 18, it's like the wrath of God is being revealed against all wickedness and unrighteousness, which is how he really starts the letter. And it's not exactly winsome to our modern ears. So I think it's like Paul asked them, what do y'all want first? Y'all want the good news or the bad news first? And they're like, give us the bad news. And Paul's like, all right, here it is. So as you read Romans 1.18 through Romans 3.20, Paul basically says, the wrath of God, the wrath of God, is being revealed or it's being made known. It's being shown to you because, he says, you Gentiles, he speaks to them first, you Gentiles, you are wicked and you are full of unrighteousness. And then he turns to the Jews and he says, and you Jews, you are full of wickedness and self-righteousness. So that's how Paul kicks off the letter. Basically, everyone who has ever been born, he says, you are desperately wicked and without hope before a holy and righteous God. That is extremely bad news. He ends his opening argument in verse 3, well, going through 320, but in 310, he says there is no one righteous. There is no one righteous. He says, no, not one. And it is bad news because righteousness is what God requires. 
That's, that's the requirement. If we are to be right with God, if we are to be able to stand before a holy and good and righteous God, we have to be righteous. It is the only way that you and I will ever be able to stand in his presence. And so when we read that no one is righteous, no, not one, it's pretty devastating. It's pretty bad news. But this part of the message, this bad news, is actually the first part of the glorious gospel of grace. Because the good news is only good if we know how bad the bad news is. Nobody, nobody is going to volunteer to have open-heart surgery unless the doctor tells them that they will die without it, right? Nobody, nobody is going to go to the cure unless they know the diagnosis. And you and I, we are not going to run to the cure of the gospel without knowing our desperate need of it. I just had my first little, you know, little cancerous growth. I'm getting to that age where I don't know if they'll just be, you know, standard from now on because of all my years spent in the sun. But I can guarantee you that if the doctor had not told me it was cancer, I would not have let them take a knife to my chest. I wouldn't have done it because I am not going to run to any type of cure unless I know the diagnosis. So friends... The bad news is bad, but the good news, the good news is so, so good. So if Paul thought that this was the best way to begin his glorious letter, the one, the letter that is going to lead him to worship and to praise and to rejoice, and you and I, we're going to get there, we're going to get there too, but I am trusting that it is a pretty good way for you and I to start our time together too. So tonight, welcome to the bad news. We are going to look at the fact that sin is real, sin is universal, and sin is serious. Sin is real. I have a friend whose daughter went to kindergarten, and the teachers were at this particular school were actually instructed on what to do with a child that either hit or bit or, you know, cheated or, or whatever it was, and they were not to tell this five-year-old child that what they had done was wrong. They were not to actually even tell them no. They were not to tell them that they had done an unkind thing. What they were to do is there was a special rug in this classroom, and the name of the rug was the oopsie rug. Oopsie. Oopsie, I don't know what just happened. You know, oopsie, my hand just flew out and hit Johnny in the face. Oopsie, my eyes just wandered and copied the spelling test answer. Now, I am not advocating that we yell sinner, you know, to every five-year-old child who messes up. That is not the parenting or teaching style that I am advocating for. But I am saying that we all, you and I included, have the tendency to minimize sin to rename it, to call it a mistake, to call it poor judgment, to say, well, this is just what I struggle with. We call it an oopsie. And you and I can go about minimizing and renaming and reframing sin in several different ways. Sometimes what we do is we compare our sin to others. Sure, I mean, I may tell white lies. You know, I may, I may gossip. It's not like I'm committing adultery. It's not like I'm stealing something. 
Now, a side note here on this idea, I do want to say some sins are more harmful to others than other sins, and some sins do pervert God's law and his character more than others. So I am not saying that all sin is the same, but what Paul is saying is that all sin deserves the wrath of God, and all sins separate us from God. So all sins are not equally damaging, but all sins are equally damning. Okay, So when we compare our sins in that way, we're trying to say it is less damning. And what the Word of God tells us is they are not. God does not work on a sliding scale. We also, we can minimize our sin by comparing ourselves with others. You know, well, everyone else, right? Not just comparing our sin, but comparing us with others. You know, well, everyone else is having sex before marriage, or everyone else is reading that book, or everyone else is watching that show, or everyone else laughs at those jokes. Sometimes we group ourselves with others, right? We group ourselves. But lastly, we minimize our sin by presuming upon God's grace. I know I shouldn't, but he'll forgive me. It's God. It's what he does. It's kind of like his job, right, to forgive me. It's not how God works. He's not working on this sliding scale. He is in no way obligated to lower his standards in a, in a comparison, contrast kind of way or in any way at all. And Paul's point in this section is that every sin, every time, deserves God's righteous wrath. That is bad news for you and for me. So what do we do? What do you do? What do you do when you hear a word that describes a sin that you either have committed or want to commit or are committing or planning to commit? You know, you hear the words, and, and there, there are so many. I mean, we've, we've touched on a few, but gossip, slander, I mean, honestly, those are the easy ones, right? Adultery, lust, anger, lying, bitterness, prejudice. I mean, when you hear those words, what goes on in your mind? What do you do? Do you immediately minimize it in one of these ways? Do you, do you compare your sin? Do you compare yourself to others? You know, well, I'm, no per I'm not perfect. I'm no, I'm no saint, but at least I'm not as bad as, you know, you know who. I mean, she's really, she's really messed up. What do you do with it? Do you immediately repent and ask God for the grace, which we will be talking a lot more about tomorrow night, the grace to walk away or to put off that sin? This is why it is so important to call sin, sin, and not and oopsie, not just something I struggle with. Because if you and I want to respond appropriately to the Word of God, if you and I want to respond faithfully to what the Spirit is doing in us, the only appropriate response, the only faithful response is to confess and to repent. So when God brings a particular sin to mind, what call it sin that is confession 
We are agreeing with God that it's sin. Because part of what makes God God is that he is the one who gets to determine what sin is. Not us. We don't get to determine that. I mean, your truth is not your truth. God's truth is your truth. That's the world we live in. That's true truth right there, friends. He's the one that gets to determine what is sin and what is not. And so when we confess, what we're doing is we are agreeing with God that what he calls sin is sin. Then when we repent, what we do is we turn from it and we walk towards God, asking him for the grace, the mercy, and the wisdom, and the strength, and everything it takes to walk away from this sin. Because sin is real. It is real. And God is the one who has determined what it is. Sin is also universal. You know, during the global pandemic, every single person faced the same disease, right? Regardless of age, regardless of marital status, ethnicity, gender, nationality, financial status. I mean, regardless of any of these things, everybody was at risk of the infection. COVID was no respecter of persons. And I heard, I heard a newscaster say one time that this was the first time that we had experienced something like this globally, where everyone on the whole planet was fighting the exact same thing. It was not the first time. You and I have faced a global pandemic of much greater significance, much greater proportion, much higher mortality rate. Try 100%. Try 100% mortality rate every single day since Eden. Every single day since Eve took a bite out of that fruit, our global pandemic is sin, and it affects every single person who has ever been born, and it is 100% fatal if you do not have the cure. Romans will tell us that the wages of sin is death. I mean, that is, that is the diagnosis. But did you notice in the global pandemic how so many people, COVID united people in some really helpful ways. And so during the pandemic, what we saw because of our common enemy, I think we all felt more connected to people all over the world. It was a, it was a, um, a, it was a what am I trying to say? It brought us all in the same place, and the word is not with me right now. I've told somebody I am three hours ahead of us time-wise, so it's like 10.18 my time right now, so <laughs> when the words don't come. But it, it, it was an equalizer. It brought us together in this way, and what we saw, we saw more acts of just compassion and random acts of kindness, didn't we? We saw more instances where people were willing to sacrifice for the health of others. I mean, think of all of our first responders. Think of everybody in the medical world. We saw, we saw a desire to help people, strangers, people we don't even know. And I'd say in the same way that the universality of sin, the universality of the disease that we all suffer should unite us in certain ways. Our compassion for others should increase. 
You and I should want to help others. We should want to help them understand and find healing from the disease. We should desire that everybody knows what the cure is for everyone to hear, have an opportunity to hear the good news. And we should have an increased willingness to sacrifice for the good of others, even those we don't know. But sadly, I think what we do, we tend to do just the opposite. Instead of this increased compassion and increased desire to spread the good news of the cure, we use this universality of our sin in some very unhealthy ways. Uh, Much like what we do to minimize sin, you and I can bond over the commonality of sin. So think about it. If you struggle with gossip, (laughs) I mean, all of us, right? If we struggle with gossip, it is so much more fun to be with people who gossip. If you struggle with materialism, it is so much more fun to be with those who do too. If you struggle with racism, I promise you your closest friends are racist too, or you edit yourself around those who aren't. If you struggle with moral superiority, you will surround yourself with those who do too. And we do this for several reasons. The first is that the darkness of our own sin pales when it's pooled with others like it. Think about that for a minute. It, when we cast our sin into this pool, it just pales. It doesn't stand out quite as much. We don't feel as condemned around others who sin in similar ways to us. And we feel justified. I am not the only one. And so what we do is we confuse common, sin is common to us all, with it is okay to be like this. And then we start building tribes, right, with people over sin. And we reinforce the bonds that we share by reiterating these little tribal mantras that we come up with, our tribal language. So if your tribal language, if your tribe is built around gossip, then I promise you your mantra is this. Well, we just care about others and their struggles, you know. Well, I just have the gift of discernment, you know. We should pray for so-and-so. Did you hear? Right? We, We have language that we use. If your tribe is built around materialism, the refrain can be, well, shopping's just my guilty pleasure. I can't help it if I like nice things. I mean, these are the things we do to justify our behavior, and the universality of sin ends up binding us. Instead of it binding us to each other, it bonds us to each other. And so we share a common, the universality binding together of sin, but we don't bond over our common sin. And so remember what was causing division in the believers in Rome? It was tribalism. It was us versus them, the ones in the right and the ones who didn't understand, the one who deserved, the ones who deserved the wrath of God, and the ones who didn't. So I hope you're in Romans 1. Start with me looking in verse 21. But it is really interesting to me how Paul starts using this language of they and them and those and us. It is divisive tribal language. Listen. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malicious, maliciousness. They are gossips. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And I can just imagine the Jewish Christians in Rome, as the letter is being read out loud, kind of puffing up and thinking, that's right, Paul, those Gentiles. I am so glad you get it, Paul. Clearly, you're one of us. You're part of our tribe. It's almost like Paul was on Twitter. But in chapter 2, Paul turns on them and he shows them, oh, he's not forming a tribe. He's not promoting us versus them. He's showing them how much they actually have in common. And chapter 2 starts off, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He's like, you're just like them. You're just like them. And then chapter 3 just hammers the point home. He's like, that's right, none of you are righteous, both Jew and Gentile, all alike, under sin. It's who you are. Verse 10, no one is righteous, no, not one. And that is exactly where Paul was bringing them. Because that, chapter 3, verse 10, That is the level ground that every one of us in this room stand on. There is no one righteous in this room. No, not one. And the universality of sin should humble us, not divide us into camps, because my sin is different than your sin. We're all desperately wicked in need of a savior. So Paul is saying that all of them and all of us, he was saying Jew, Gentile, man, woman, old, young, successful or unemployed, healthy or sick. Friends, listen, Democrat or Republican, woke or not woke, rich or poor, everybody stands together in the exact same place because none of those things are our righteousness. None of those things are our righteousness. We stand in the exact same place, which is unrighteous before a holy, holy God. And that level ground, friends, it should unite us. So if you know that you struggle like the Jewish Christians in Rome with these feelings of superiority, these things that cultivate pride and tribalism in you. You know, maybe, maybe you think your denomination has a corner on the market on good theology. Maybe you fall on all the right sides of our current cultural divides. Maybe your church has the coolest pastor in town. Maybe you have discovered the correct political party. Maybe you're just the nicest person that you know. (laughs) It can be anything, friends. It can be anything. But if you struggle with thinking that anything other than Christ alone is your righteousness, humble yourself on the level ground of Romans 3.10. No one is righteous. 
No, not one. And that's the point Paul's been making from 118 to 320. There never has been, there never will be a righteous person. And so while there are unhealthy and wrong ways to be united by sin, let the universality of sin unite you to other people in healthy and right ways. Be humbled by it. Have your compassion for others increase. Have an increased desire to share the good news that there is a glorious cure to this global disease. So sin is real, sin is universal, and sin is serious. For Christmas last year, my husband gave me a coffee mug that has a really grumpy looking Santa on it, and underneath it says, y'all are all naughty, Romans 3.20. (laughs) I love it. It's so funny, isn't it? But the humor serves to lighten the weight of Paul's message. And we all want to do that. We just want to, we want to lighten it up a bit. I mean, I do. I was asking for prayer earlier. Like, oh, this is such a hard way to start, like talking about sin and unrighteousness. And we just want to lighten it up, you know, make it more palatable for ourselves and make it more palatable for others. Make my own soul feel just a little bit more comfortable with this. And so sometimes we even minimize God's view of sin. You know, God's not really angry. He's just kind of frustrated with me. You know, he's, he probably rolls his eyes at me and throws up his hands because he doesn't really know what to do with me, you know, shakes his head. And we like to think of God, I think the video even talked about this, we like to think of God as this benevolent grandfather or maybe even better yet, kind of a forgetful Santa Claus who, who just kind of chuckles at our mistakes, like thinks we're kind of cute. He doesn't think we're cute. He thinks we're wicked and unrighteous. That's what the Bible tells us. We think he's going to put nobody on his naughty list. We're all on the naughty list, friends. That's what Scripture tells us. The Bible says that God's wrath, his holy consuming wrath, is being revealed. It's being shown. It's being manifest. It's being made known. It's a holy wrath. It is a consuming fire. You know, Jonathan Edwards so famously said it is a terrifying thing. To fall, for sinners to fall into the hands of an angry or a wrathful God. Now, I do want to say that the wrath of God is not like our anger. It is not volatile. It is not inconsistent. It is not irrational. It is not unpredictable. It is not based on his own pride or being offended. It is holy. It is righteous. It is good. And you know what? His wrath is actually good for us. His wrath is good for us because ultimately God's wrath is against sin and against evil. And to say that sin is bad for us or that evil is harmful is an understatement. I mean, sin kills us. The wages of sin is death. Evil destroys us. And God is going to pour out his wrath on those very things, the disease that kills us, the disease that separates us from him. In Genesis 6, chapter 6 through 9, we can read about a time when God poured out his wrath on evil. 
and unrighteousness. And it's the story of Noah and the flood. And God sent the flood to consume the wickedness that had become rampant. But do you remember what he did? God provided a way out for anyone who would trust in him. He had Noah build an ark, and through the building of the ark, he warned people about the coming flood, about the coming pouring out of his wrath. They were invited into God's ark, and that would have been their salvation. That's his provision. But we know that no one listened outside of Noah and his family. Nobody else got in the ark. And as a result, we read that everyone perished. They all perished under God's holy wrath and his righteous, his good judgment on sin and evil. But in the same way, like he did for Noah in Noah's day, God has provided a way for you and I to be safe from this holy and just wrath. He has given us fair warning. He has issued and reissued his invitation, and he has sent his son, the ark in whom you and I are to hide. Because, friends, if we are in Christ. That's what scripture tells us happens at salvation. We are in Christ. God's wrath will not touch us. And in the same way that the ark simultaneously endured the flood and protected those inside, right? At the same time, Christ endured the wrath of God for us. And if we are in him, you and I will be safe. The flood, the wrath, will never touch us. That is the ark provided. And so, friends, it is not popular to say, but the point that Paul wanted his readers to understand is that sin is so real, and sin is universal. It it affects all of us. And sin is serious. It will kill us. The bad news is bad. The diagnosis is terminal. But friends, the good news is coming. If you can't wait to get there, go read 321. We'll talk about it tomorrow. But the ark has been given. And he is your only hope. He is your only cure. He is your only salvation. And so friends, run to him. Let's pray. Almighty God. You are both just and the justifier. You are so good to us. You do not treat us as our sins deserve. Oh, Father, let us be humbled under the truth of our own sin. Lord, let us look it square in the face. Agree with you, Lord, that our sin is sin. It separates us from you, Lord. Let us confess those to you, knowing that we are in Christ. We cannot be harmed. It is safe to agree with you. And then, Lord, give us the grace to repent and turn from it. And thank you, oh God, that you have not left us alone, but you have provided the cure. May we run to him. We pray this all in his name. Amen.